Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Hi, listeners. I am so thrilled and excited to introduce this week's guest, Dr. Julie Potterwitz. She is the director of the Population Council's HIV AIDS program, where she provides leadership for a portfolio of research that generates evidence to inform HIV programs and policies around the world. She has over 20 years of experience in implementation science with particular focus on gender and men's engagement, stigma, sexual and gender-based violence, and social and behavioral change. She's worked in over 20 countries across Africa, Asia, and Latin America, in addition to the United States. We're so thrilled to have you here today. Thanks so much, Carmen. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So usually if I met somebody, I talk about our origin story. I don't know if I've met you in person. It feels like I know you a little bit through Zoom now because we've been just meeting. Have we ever met in person? I feel like we must have met at different meetings, but when we've mostly been talking recently, it's been on Zoom, and we've had the chance to be in several different meetings over the last year. So I was thrilled when you reached out to talk some more. Amazing. I've known about your research for a really long time, and it's really informed the work that I do, so it is an honor. I want to ask you if I'm in an elevator with you, and imagine it's post-vaccination, we can all hang out in elevators and there's not this restriction of the number of people in elevators and masks. I mean, maybe we'll be always wearing masks in elevators. I don't know. But imagine we're in an elevator and I ask you what you do. What do you say for going up a couple of floors? Hmm, an elevator. Well, it, it would depend on who's in the elevator with me, of course. But I would generally say a random stranger. You're in an elevator with a random stranger. Random stranger. I think I would generally say something like I'm a behavioral scientist and I focus on HIV and understanding the underlying drivers of HIV risk. And in particular issues like stigma and gender relations and inequalities and whether HIV programs are successful. And so a big piece of my work over time has been to highlight the stigma and its consequences experienced by particularly marginalized and vulnerable communities around the world. And that would include sex workers, sexual and gender minorities, adolescent girls and young women, and then trying to develop and test strategies to reduce stigma and see how we can improve programming. So I would definitely be riding in the elevator with you to learn more. So I'm going to show up in your house. You say you're around the D.C. area. I am. Right now I'm showing up. I'm in your backyard or your front yard with my time machine. And my time machine has space for physically distancing. And I want to say, take me back to the time and place 
you decided you wanted to focus on stigma and HIV. Where do we go in the time machine? And it can be multiple stopovers. The time machine is, you know, is designed for business type travel. This is a very flexible time machine. And so I will take you up on that offer. And let's see, I think first I would go back to when I was an undergraduate at the university and I had started as a peer educator around HIV and reproductive health. And so I would talk to other people at the university. Uh, which university were you at? So where are we? University of Pennsylvania. Okay. And we would talk about HIV prevention and transmission. And that was pretty early on in the HIV epidemic. So that was in the mid to late 80s. And then right after I left university, I moved to Puerto Rico and I had joined the AmeriCorps, which at the time was called VISTA. And it's in essence, the US domestic version of the Peace Corps. And I worked for the Red Cross there again as a health educator. Wow. And so I would be sharing HIV information, reproductive health information. And I think my most important kind of aha moment or my learnings from these two experiences was while all the information I was sharing was really important and relevant and accurate and helpful, it was not enough to enable people to take on behaviors, healthy behaviors to be able to prevent HIV. And I, through all those conversations there, learned that there are so many other things that go on in people's lives that are around them that influence their behaviors, whether it's their partner or their family or their communities, that really inhibit someone from being able to take up the behaviors that we're sharing. And the assumption in the medical establishment often is just share more information, just share it out more widely, share it out in a more detailed way. And that was not enough. Mm -hmm. And so I would hear from women, for example, yes, I'd love to bring up negotiating condoms with my partner and I would love to prevent HIV, but I'm in a violent relationship and I'm afraid if I were to raise this, it would lead to more conflict and to, to violence. So there's just no way. Or I would hear from, you know, gay friends that I don't want anyone to know that I'm gay and I certainly don't want to disclose certain issues. I'm not going to bring up HIV at all. Forget it. So all of the and stigma was a big part of that. So all of that led me to graduate school. So I ended up at um, getting my doctorate from a public health school, but in a behavioral sciences department. And there I learned about and started talking more about now what we now what I would now call social and structural drivers of HIV risk and and thinking about some of those issues. And while I was there, Jonathan Mann was there as well. Um, this is at the Harvard School of Public Health at that time. And he was a big proponent and had raised the issue early from WHO around the importance of stigma as a major inhibitor to success at addressing the HIV pandemic. And he passed away during the time that I was at school. So that's another time machine moment. And then I joined the Population Council, I think back in 1999, where we started on a portfolio of work of really trying to understand different manifestations of stigma, how do you measure it best, because it's a very complex concept, and then trying to test out different strategies, pilot them for what can we do to reduce stigma. And if we do that, will you see a better, better outcomes regarding, for example, people accessing health services more or having better quality of life? So that's kind of my trajectory early on. So I'm, I'm going to start off in Philly and then go to Puerto Rico, which I've never been to. I've always really wanted to go there, especially there's those sparkles in the water. 
the phosphorescence in the water. Oh, in Vieques. Yeah, I really want to go there. That is a fabulous experience. You you paddle out in the darkness of night and there's just sparkles and it's like fairy dust all around you. It's beautiful. I've only ever seen it once and I had no idea what I was seeing. And it was in Cortez Island off of Vancouver Island you know, more than 20 years ago. And so since then, I've been like, okay, I need to go there. So then we go from Puerto Rico to Boston, and then from Boston to DC. Okay, I love how much your journey has led to these big learnings that I think have contributed to where we are today, you know, in the field of HIV. I know some of your work around sexual relationships and power has really changed the way that a lot of us look at these issues because I, I hear you sometimes people are like, why don't people just wear condoms? Like, it's like, we give that information. What's wrong with people? And I'm like, well, how many people have said, you know, maybe you should exercise every day and then you just don't, you know, or you should eat healthy and you don't. So, you know, the, the idea that information is not enough seems to be still needing, we still need to remind people of that. It's so funny. I agree. I mean, it's, it's just an issue that comes up over and over again. So I have tried to be in the kind of the intersection between more behavioral thinking and the medical field where it's, it kind of shifts for just thinking about the individual to thinking about sort of the population and how do communities influence individuals and norms and all of those, those points that I think, and you mentioned earlier that you knew my work. I've certainly known your work over time, too. And I think you work on some of these same areas of intersection. And I've, I've seen some of your publications around the socioecological model and, and how relevant it is. All of these issues are on these multiple levels from the individual to the community to more institutional and policy. That's that's amazing. And yeah, I still use a lot of your, your work like to this day, like right now in studies in Uganda with young refugees, we're really using your work. So I want you to tell the listener, okay, it's 2021. Why should they still care about stigma? What's your sort of like we still need to care about this. Is it urgency? How do you describe that to folks? Because I know you do and you're focusing on it. I feel like we've been talking about this since the very beginning of the pandemic. And clearly it is still a, a major driver of HIV and violence against you know key populations like sexual minorities. I'm, I'm part of a UNAIDS technical working group on, on social enablers and structural drivers. And Stigma and gender are two of the main issues we are still talking about. I think you know that uh, UNAIDS had these 2020 goals of trying to reduce the number of people who acquire HIV by 2020 to 500,000 people. And they also had a goal of getting to zero stigma and discrimination. And we are so far from there. There's been lots of successes, but we are far from those two goals. And almost 2 million people every year over the last several years have acquired HIV and and while we don't know, it's even difficult to put a number to how much stigma is being experienced by people around the world, which kind of leads me to one of the points, which is we need to continue to generate evidence to show that it's ongoing and how it manifests in different ways. And it may have evolved over time in different ways in different places, but it's still there. So that's huge. And I think many people were under the impression that once Medications became available, successful, you know, effective medications, antiretrovirals, mm. where people would start 
feeling healthy again and start looking healthy again and start being part of communities and going back to work, for example, that stigma would go away. And that has not been the case. And that's because it's intertwined with so many other issues that we both regularly talk about, like these moral and other types of value judgments associated with different marginalized populations and different behaviors, like a particular type of sex, et cetera. And all of that still exists. And we have to continue to unpack it and look how they reinforce one another and address them all simultaneously. Yeah, it's so important what you said, because even when people do take medication and are healthy, they still experience stigma. But the stigma is a barrier to people taking the medication because they don't want people to see them often, you know, with with the medication, at least, you know, in a lot of the work that, that we're doing. So it's, yeah, the information's not enough, medication's not enough. We actually have to change society, right? Like we have to change who's valued and who's not valued and who's seen as worthy of dignity and respect and power. Absolutely. And I too have, we've done work where people are saying that they even have to throw out their medications because they don't want anyone to know that they're taking it. And, you know, they're living in circumstances that they, it's, it's discovered or their partners throw out their medications because they don't acknowledge that there is HIV in the family and, and that there's medication to be taken. So there's so many factors that still, in, you know, based on stigma and gender inequalities that lead to us not achieving the goals that we want, which is people being able to avoid being exposed to HIV, having access to care when they need it, and people not dying. I think you started addressing the next question I had, which is, so there's listeners all around the world from all different walks of life. So some people might be knowing about HIV and stigma and the role that stigma plays in different people's lives. And some people might might have less knowledge. Is there any sort of stories or examples, hypothetical or anonymized, that you could kind of tell us about a day-to-day experience, like you mentioned, maybe somebody not being able to take medication or someone's partner taking away, to sort of let the listener in on a day, a daily in the life of somebody and how stigma kind of interrupts or shapes their experiences. Mm. Well, let's see. So on an individual level, let's start with like as the individual. So stigma can be manifest by influencing people's behaviors like that they don't for example they're they're not wanting to seek services because they're worried if they go to the the clinic or the hospital that people would discriminate against them or they'd have to disclose something they don't want people to know so that's an example in the community for example or in the family you might see we see lots of examples where people are most worried about being socially shunned that when you're associated with having HIV or with having a family member with HIV or any of these other stigmatized identities like sexual and gender minorities being a sex worker, that you're not part of the community anymore. You're not invited to social events. You're not invited to weddings. People are not visiting you any longer. Then there are these very dramatic examples of discrimination that we've seen over time that are fortunately 
less frequent, but do happen. Like when children can't come, can't go to school because they have HIV or the families associated with it, or teachers can't teach at a school because they have HIV. And then you get to the really higher level because we've talked about individual, we've talked about community, we've talked about sort of the, some of the institutions, and then there are policies and laws. Wherever you're living in an environment which is stigmatizing to you or discriminatory, like there are dozens of countries where same-sex behavior is illegal, and that directly affects whether, you know, how you show who you are and whether you go out on the street and whether you can go to socialize, et cetera. So that's many different ways that stigma is manifest in the life. It's an individual person, but it's on all these levels that affect them. Those are great examples. Thank you. And I, I love that you shared them and how they exist across multiple spheres. One thing that made me think of, and I just, just reflected on as you were talking, is you know, the stigma that still surrounds sex and, and, and being sexually active, especially with young people. And I've been thinking about, uh, I've been working in Uganda for a few years and just also working on a special issue that's, you know, that, that involves some articles about youth in, in, other, in other countries where when young women get pregnant, they're not allowed to go to school, you know, and how that's such an example of stigmatizing the young woman and not, not allowing her to continue her education too, right? So it could be something that is like HIV, but it could also be something that's like pregnancy too, right? Oh, what a great example. Let me, let me share um, an, a related one to, with you around PrEP stigma. So PrEP, as you know, um, and for the listeners, uh, is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So it's our most, one of our, the biomedical option now, pills or more recently eject, injectable medicines that are really effective in keeping you from acquiring HIV when you get exposed to HIV. We did a study a few years ago in Tanzania about uh, how best to roll out PrEP in the context, uh, in the Tanzanian context. They were trying to think about how to develop policies, particularly for adolescent girls and young women, because this is part of a larger program trying to reduce the really high rates of acquiring HIV that are experienced by young women in Eastern and Southern Africa currently, something like five or 6,000 young women every week acquire HIV today. And the young women knew that they were at risk of HIV. Their parents knew they were at risk of HIV. The, um, the service providers knew, the policymakers knew. They wanted to find a way to enable these young women to reduce their risk of HIV. But fundamentally, they were all worried about stigma. And so this stigma is the one that you're talking about. It's stigma around sexuality and at particularly adolescent sexuality. So these young women had terrible experiences when they went to, to health centers. Sometimes they were asked like, are you sexually active? You should not be sexually active. And therefore thus you wouldn't need prep, but everyone knew that they needed prep. And so what to do about that? They were terribly concerned. They'd be stigmatized. Their parents even wanted to support them, but the norms of society saying that adolescent girls shouldn't be sexually active. And then you gave it a great example of if they do become pregnant, they're often not allowed to go to school. And there have been big efforts to try to change that so that young women can return to school after they give birth, for example, for this very reason. But PrEP stigma is something that's real right now for these young women. And even though we're trying to roll it out across 
many countries, there's been comparatively low uptake, particularly in young women, because of this, that it's there's all this stigma about being sexually active at all. Thank you for that example. It's such a great example. I want to know, what is your focus on engaging men and boys? What is that like? And, and how do you kind of tackle stigma through that angle? So the the work around engaging men and boys kind of largely came out of this, my original work around gender and power, where women were, were at risk of HIV and their partners were a big piece of this. That So the gender dynamics here are what what is key, whereby we all need to see this as a lens. We're all in this together. And you don't just talk to one part of the population to say, coming back to my example earlier, go and raise condom use and go negotiate. Here are your negotiation skills without also working with their partner, without also thinking about what are the norms in the greater society and in the communities about, you know, can we talk about sexuality openly at all? How do we negotiate with each other? How do we communicate? How do we deal with conflict conflict resolution? And so trying to engage men also to understand that they have their own perspectives and needs, but also to be successful in reducing risk for women, you have to think about partners and parents and families role in this. And so this work started early on, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago to think about men being involved as individuals, as clients, as people who have their own needs and you want to reduce you know, their own risk as partners to reduce the risk of their partner and be able to address larger societal issues and then as agents of change. So we published something on this back in the early 2000s where you could think about men also as advocates and standing up to against gender-based violence, for example, and for communication and HIV testing and, and HIV risk reduction when needed. And, and so there's been a long line of work thinking about how to highlighting these issues, engaging men on, in, on communi- in community-based programming. So it's not just looking at one group or the other. And in fact, I, what I find is often most important is that you have opportunities for young women, for example, to, to interact with each other separately and men as well, but then opportunities to come together and communicate across groups and communicate across communities, such as programs like Stepping Stones or SASA, where it's kind of community-based, where you can have dialogue that's sort of a safe space and then you have to confront it and deal with it together. And so that's been some of the work and a big piece of it has been around measurement. It's been around documenting that these issues are important. Stigma and gender dynamics and gender norms are important. We can measure it. We can show you that it's associated with violence. We can show you it's associated with HIV risk. And if you try to address it directly by engaging men more effectively or by reducing stigma directly, then you can get to better outcomes around health and quality of life. And so that's been the kind of the body of work over time. I really love that you address the complexity of power dynamics by looking at boys and men's own needs, but also their role and their power and in their sexual relationships. Uh, so I'm going to ask you our third question, the final stigma question. And it's really funny because 
I was on a panel last night on COVID-19 stigma and anti-Asian racism, and they asked me this question, and I realized how hard this question is. And I was like, oh, I've been asking my podcast because this, and it's a huge question, which is, what do you want the listeners to do about it? How can the listeners be part of the solution? So I know that, you know, the solutions are multi-leveled or in our individual selves, our relationships, our communities. So, so you don't have to cover everything, but if there's a listener walking their dog right now or drinking some coffee, what is something that they can take away and act on? Mm. Okay. Let me think of maybe two points. Um, and let me start the first point around promoting resilience and some work, a piece of work that I've been engaged in over the last several years with the developers of what's been called the people living with HIV stigma index. It's a survey tool that was developed by communities of people living with HIV. It's administered to people living with HIV and by people living with HIV. And it's the most widely used tool to kind of um, collect information for the perspective of people living with HIV around stigma. And my colleagues and I worked together with the developers to kind of update and revise it from a researcher perspective. And through that experience over the last several years, we developed what's called a what we call the resiliency scale. And what came up here is feedback from the community over time that it's not only about stigma. It's not only about the negative. It's not only about the blaming. It's about what can we do to be resilient and who is resilient in the face of HIV and when dealing with stigma. And we have to measure that directly too. And so we developed this scale. And what do I mean by resilient? It's sort of people who are able to function well, have relationships, have work, be satisfied with their lives, even in the context of HIV and stigma. And across samples in Cambodia, in the Dominican Republic, and in Uganda, we found that the people who tended to be more resilient were those who lived in places with anti-stigma laws, and who knew about these laws and their rights, as well as people who had less internalized stigma. And I, so what that means is you need to promote resilience both on the individual level with support like addressing internalized stigma and taking on some of the self-blame, but also in terms of the advocacy and activism that we saw throughout the history in reaction to the HIV pandemic that was a hallmark of reacting to a disease differently than almost any other public health emergency we've seen where the group of people affected by it became advocates and activists for their own health and communities came together to support that. So that is something that we can all participate in. So we need to address internalized stigma, we need to promote resiliency, and we also need to create this enabling environment. And this enabling environment like a more supportive health system and appropriate anti-stigma laws. And I think there are ways that all of us out there can contribute to these pieces depending upon what you work on and what you do. Um, so that's the first point that I would make. And can I just say, I love that point. I think, you know, across the podcast, and I just finished writing this book around um, challenging the idea that people are hard to reach. And I interviewed people from various projects that I worked on from indigenous um, colleagues in the Arctic to LGBTQ colleagues in uh, Eswatini, uh, you know, to trans, a woman of color in Canada. And when I asked them what they wanted, you know, researchers to know, which I think is researchers are humans, 
it all came down to understanding our shared humanity, that people aren't just marginalized and vulnerable. They have hopes and dreams and, you know, they are resisting. They're not passive victims. People are always resisting um, stigma in their own ways and celebrating, right? Like gay pride Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or protesting like Black Lives Matter. You know, the whole AIDS movement became such a, a movement of solidarity too. So I think I really appreciate that you're bringing that sort of collective, our collective humanity and collective resilience and, and recognizing that and then joining with it. So that that's, I find that so inspiring. Thank oh, you. I, and I almost want to stop there now because I, that should have been my second point because I feel like that's the more important <laughs> point. The, the other point that I wanted to make though, put it back on my researcher hat, is that at this point, we do have evidence that you can reduce stigma. And when you do, there are positive outcomes. So just as an example for a study in, in Vietnam that I was working in over a decade ago now in TB hospitals, where the key part was the whole system, the whole system sort of intervention where you worked with, you did trainings for the, the doctors and the nurses, but also for the receptionists and, and the cleaners, because stigma can be experienced and, and you can improve quality of care all the way through. So that was a key part. And the other key part was bringing in representatives from community-led organizations, so people living with HIV themselves, to be part of the training and to be help do the training. And that made such a difference as well. So just that's an example of something that we can be promoting and and scaling up and the challenges are that it's really tough to get funding for stigma focused activities and for key population focused activities so i think that most of the funding that goes toward hiv and key populations at this point still come from international donors even though you know domestic funding in most countries has taken over for just HIV in general, but for work around stigma and key populations, it's still not um, a widely funded or scaled up. So that's the second point that I wanted to make. Sort of there's evidence out there that we need to apply and scale up so that we have these solutions. And I really appreciate that point. There's two things that came to mind. One was, you know, we both work with uh, Dr. Lauren Nelson, who has been on this podcast and Dr. Laura Nyblade, who is going to be coming on, I'm shouting her out in advance. Mm-hmm. And they're do you know working with them on this whole facilities uh, stigma intervention in Ghana with everybody from security guards. So similar to what you said. And part of what I just thought of now when you were saying that is that it means all of us matter, no matter what our role is in society us being non-stigmatizing matters. You know, if I am a security guard or uh, serving food or driving a bus or a nurse or a doctor, my actions matter and they impact people. So none of us are too small in, in the world to make a difference either positively or negatively in someone's life. So no matter what our position is, you know, it matters because we're all part of creating this social world. And I think that's really well put. And that in all these institutions that we've created, whether it be a church or whether it be a health facility or whether it be a school, people are represented there from the larger communities and they bring the norms 
and the prejudices as well as this potential support system that exists in the wider society and wider, wider world into these smaller microcosms. And I think that we can influence these institutions as well by changing larger societal norms and highlighting that every individual has a role in this, whether it be a smaller system or a bigger system. And that that work I mentioned in Vietnam was in fact some time ago, and I, it was with Laura as well. Laura Nibley was part of that study in Vietnam. You hear this, Laura? You gotta come on, Laura. We're calling you onto this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing you made me think of when you said how hard it is to get pure stigma work funded was on a, a podcast earlier in 2021, uh, Dr. Charlotte Lopi came on to talk about anti-Indigenous stigma and anti-Black racism and how, and she used the analogy of a tree. And she said that when we see a tree and we see it dying, it, its leaves are often what's impacted, right? We'll see the leaves brown or something going on with the branches. And she used this analogy, like that's where we're focusing on like, oh, what do we need to spray the tree with? What do we need to you know, fix this tree, but, and we're looking at the leaves and we're looking at the branches, but she's saying that, you know, what's much more difficult is to actually like dig up the earth and and figure out what is toxic in the environment to this tree. What are the fundamental root cause of the fact that the the leaves are, are, are dying, you know, it's often something that's much deeper, but that takes a lot more work, right? So getting to the roots of stigma is really dismantling our, our norms and our values and how we've constructed histories and in a lot of different policies and things like that and, and education and media. So it's almost like a lot of to invest in digging up the earth around the tree and, you know, putting in a new soil or a whole new yard or whatever it is, rather than just looking at the leaves and saying, oh, how can we, you know, we spray them or it's much easier just to get on a ladder, right? Than to like dig everything up. I think it's a great visual image and it intersects really nicely with what I think UNAIDS is trying to do with this technical working group around structural drivers. So it's highlighting these pieces, which are these structural drivers, which are the roots themselves and how you need to address them for to have the tree be healthy. But not only that, it makes other trees healthy. It's not just the oak. It's also the maple and it's also the palm tree because it won't just affect HIV. Mm. I came into this work related to HIV, but stigmas abound around, as we talked about sexuality, we talked about different marginalized groups, we talked about sex work, we talked, you know, we didn't talk much about racism, but the history of racism, and there's so um, um, economic inequalities and all of these different stigmas, we talked about PrEP stigma and all of these different stigmas will lead to a set of positive outcomes, not just reducing HIV, but also unwanted pregnancy, staying in school longer, being able to, for young women, being able to acquire, you know, economic autonomy and independence, which is better for society writ large. So it just reduces violence, will contribute to so many positive outcomes, not just HIV that we are all aiming for as we think about global health and development. Thank you so much. You are so brilliant. I am so grateful that you've shared all your wisdom with us. Not all of it. I'm sure just like a drop of of your ocean of wisdom. Carmen, what a pleasure. (laughs) Are you ready for the wild cards so they can get to know 
the real you? I am ready. <laughs> all right, all right. Hit me with it. So wildcard one, what are you binging or watching on Netflix, Crave, Hulu, whatever is your platform? Hmm. So I'm a Netflix fan at the moment, or I recently completed a series called The Queen's Gambit. I heard it's got chess, right? It's about chess. It's it's a fictional story. It's about a young orphaned woman in the U.S. in, I think, the 1950s. And she has a gift for playing chess. And this was unheard of then. This was really a man's game. And it tells the story of her resilience and her and her growth, starting from something like age eight or nine, where she learned chess and started playing chess in the basement of the orphanage with the, the janitor who lived there, who worked there. And then it became clear she was a prodigy and she had the internal strength to overcome all these challenges and become a chess master ultimately and beat the best players and who at that time in the U.S. and then ultimately globally. And so the best players were from Russia at the time. And I think they're often still from Russia. And I liked the storyline so much that I'm now, in fact, reading the book that it's based on. Because when you get to a book, you get so many more nuances and more details than you can portray in a movie or a series. So that's that's what I'm doing currently. Oh, I'm, you're inspiring me to watch that. I watched a movie about a uh, chess player. Did you watch The Queen of Katwe? Yes. <laughs> in, it was based in Uganda, right? Yeah. I loved it. Yeah, it was so inspiring. And, and I'm working actually in that community of, of Katwe. And they're like, oh that was filmed over here and they, they show this like kind of cleaned up part of the community where the movie was filmed. But also I think what was interesting about that was you got to see the traffic in Kampala, which can I tell you the traffic in Kampala is the reason that this podcast exists. Really? Because I was spending so much hours in the traffic every day, it was about at least four hours, two hours one way, two hours the other way, no matter what. So I would just get up and walk sometimes because the traffic is so bad that I thought, how can I be using this time productively? And then someone suggests a podcast. So I started, so I downloaded a whole bunch of podcasts onto my iPhone and then just like listen to them in traffic. And I learned so much that this, the reason I even imagined ever doing a podcast, thank you, Kampala Traffic. You are the reason behind this podcast, but also... <laughs> what a great story. <laughs> I've never actually shared that on this podcast. I mean, I was also supposed to do a documentary on stigma and because we couldn't film because of COVID, I, I just, just did this podcast. But I oh, I got into podcasts because of, of that. But My now you're making me think about the Queen's Camp and I'm like, I need to read that. I to watch that and read it too. My parallel story with being stuck in traffic is in the mid-90s, I was living in Thailand in Bangkok and they were famous for having horrible traffic at the time. They've since developed a sky train. But at the time, you would sit in traffic for three, four hours. And it was the first time that I was really seeing the use of cell phones because you just never knew if you were going to arrive at a meeting on time or at all. And so people started doing all their work in cars. <laughs> and they, to do that, they needed, you know, cell phones. So that's, uh, you know, that was another, it was mobile work office space in all of these taxis and tuk-tuks because of this unbelievable traffic. So not so different from what you were saying. 
right? And the SkyTrain in Bangkok is so beautiful and so clean. It puts like Toronto to shame. I don't know. It looks like you want to hang out in there. SkyTrain. It's so so. All the platforms, everything is is really really gorgeous. Yeah, I don't know. Toronto's pretty beautiful. And also, I remember when I was there last in for one of the AIDS conferences, has the highest rating gelato oh. in the world. It's in a, a gelato store near the conference center, and they were ranked as the top gelato, even compared to folks in Italy, at least at the time that I was wow. there. Wow. Okay, you're inspiring me. I need to get back. I need to get back. Okay, the second wildcard question is, you can go. Imagine there's no COVID restrictions or, you know, yeah, imagine there's no COVID restrictions. You can go for dinner anywhere in the world you want with anybody you want, living or dead. Where do you go and who do you take? Hmm. Let's see. So what what I've been really missing during this time of COVID, where it's been so much social isolation and being at home is, and one of my favorite activities was meeting with close friends at a Korean spa nearby. Nice. And we would we'd go for hours and sit there in our pajamas eating Korean food. Um, I'm a big fan of japchae, which is a glass noodle or the nice. sweet potato noodle. And we would kind of go in and out of these stone huts at these Korean spas. So there's big stone huts that are of different temperatures. So some extremely hot and others extremely cold. And the hottest one was sort of bedecked with juice. So there were jewels encrusted on the ceiling and on, on the walls. They're semi-precious stones. And there's another one with these, you know, clay balls that you can kind of sink into. So I think I'm really looking forward to getting back to that, to meeting with close friends and kind of checking in about reflecting on life while we're lying in these stone huts and then eating a lot of job chay. Oh, and then we'd usually go next door to the Japanese bakery and get some matcha green tea cake or cream puffs. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. I need to visit you just to do those things because that sounds magical. I've been to spas in Toronto, but they're more like just glass rooms. Like you go with the different temperatures. So this the idea of the jeweled huts is just amazing. I'm very inspired right now to visit you at some point. So you are welcome to join me. And this place is close to the airport. So I say maybe about a year from now, we can meet there and we can continue our conversation. I'm totally interested in that. Okay, the last question I have, which is what I ask everybody, what is um, a piece of advice, a quote, a saying that has been useful to you on your journey of life that you'd like to share with the listener? Hmm, that's an interesting question piece of advice or wisdom yeah or a song lyric a poem anything that sort of you know if you have anything written on your on your bulletin board so something that comes to mind that i've always found really moving and i try to keep in mind is the following so it's it's a quote from or a saying from maya angelou who you may know is an american poet who died probably about five years ago she's amazing who was really just so insightful about human relations. And the, the quote I remember from her, because she has many, is something like, people won't remember what you say, and they're going to forget what you do, but they won't ever forget how you make them feel. Mm, that's so good. And 
I think it says something really about how we want to interact with each other in the world, in life, in daily life. Well, we should also think about it for our, in our work life and and how we interact with the communities that I work with all over the world. So a lot of it is about respect. A lot of it is about ensuring everyone has a voice and how people feel is really important. So that's what I would leave you with. I love that. I think that is so, so, so beautiful and important. And I'm going to add that to my, I have like a a whiteboard where I put up words of (laughs) wisdom and things like that. So it's right beside my desk. So thank you so much. I just want to say thank you again for, for being such a wonderful guest. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. It really gave you know, it's so nice to have a connection because I'm still working from home most of the time to be able to to talk about these issues that we care about that we're trying to continue during these really different, difficult t- COVID area time. And I, I just think we didn't talk about this, but there's so many lessons around stigma that we can now be applying to the COVID pandemic and that I think people in the HIV field are trying to do so. So I, I hope that we can take some of our learnings around stigma and apply them to what everyone's facing with COVID uh, globally. Yeah, it's something that, yeah, I've been doing a few talks for the past year and written a couple of things on, hey, we have a lot to learn from HIV stigma to COVID-19 stigma. And even last night I was doing this talk on um, anti-Asian racism and COVID-19. And I used the example of HIV stigma and Ebola stigma and just, you know, the stigma we we have towards illnesses is is ancient. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not as if HIV is ancient. It's only 40 years old. It's not ancient. But it's, you know, we can go back centuries and see how how we've stigmatized people and and illnesses. And And TB, for example. So many, so many things. Mm-hmm. So how do we not do that? How do we, how do we stop that? Right, like stop the the blame and shame and of any illness and people associated with that. So maybe we can plan on some work together on this topic when we meet at the spa. I can't wait. This is going to be great in the jeweled hut, <laughs> uh, listeners. I think there's going to be a part two with Dr. Julie Pulowitz post. Korean spa hangout in 2022. So stay tuned. (laughs) Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Have a lovely afternoon. Bye. You too. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Mm-hmm.